Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number nine. Today I'm talking with Telsing Andrews of Astor Lane Edibles. Telsing is a small nursery owner and plant breeder in uh, Ontario, Canada. And she works with a very large number of species and is very active in the online plant breeding community. This episode is another that was recorded some time ago. And uh, that's particularly unfortunate in this case because Telsing is closing her nursery in the near future. and In fact, in March. So if you want to order seeds or if you're in Canada plants from her, you have uh, a very limited window in which to do so. So I recommend that uh, you head on over to astralineedibles.ca and uh, take a look while you still can. And with that, Telsing Andrews. Okay, so I'm Telsing Andrews, and I run a small nursery called Astor Lane Edibles. And it initially uh, was there to fill a niche for people who are interested in edible landscaping, uh, especially in terms of being able to source particular plants. Because I was, at that time when I had started, I was sourcing almost all of the plants for designs that I was making from my own uh, urban yard then so you know I didn't even have that many plants and there was pretty much nothing available in Canada so the nursery started from there but then it sort of morphed into something else and so I started doing a lot of uh, selection on plants again initially a lot of the harder to source edible perennials because people would ask me oh do you have you know that pretty golden lemon balm that I saw on the internet and I'd be like no and you can't get in Canada so I started to try and recreate some of these ornamentals or higher yielding uh, edible ornamentals that people had been seeing pictures of but from there I moved deeper into the tunnel of plant breeding towards uh, annual crops or more staple crops and so I, I've been doing pretty much everything that's sold through Astor Lane Edibles is a selection that I've made either through the plants being the best ones that grew in the area, so very kind of basic passive selection or intentional selection. And a lot of the intentional selection has been with well, some of the more borderline crops or the annual, what we call, well, we call them annuals, so the annually growing plants. Cool. So how long have you been at this? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, in different capacities for 15 years. Yeah, you have been a, a, certainly a fixture of the online plant breeding community for a long time. And uh, yes. I've, I've definitely been impressed over the year. Every time I learn about a new plant, I start doing a little research on it. It's not long before I discover, oh, Telsing's already breeding that plant. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what's funny is, uh, and not in terms of breeding, but in terms of just being familiar with plants, um, uh, uh, Stephen Barstow in Norway has always been that person for me. I'd be like, oh, that's a neat plant. Search, search. Oh, my goodness, there he is again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, he's insane. He's got, I don't I don't know, hundreds, maybe, I don't know, maybe as many as a, a, a thousand different, uh, different plants going i don't know how he even keeps track of them i he has excellent labeling or something i don't know i i'd love to see his garden because the sort of biodiversity he speaks about at any rate would be sort of fascinating to see in the parcel of land that he grows on yeah absolutely so 
you you grow a lot of plants and uh, mm-hmm. and you breed a lot of, pl- of plants, but which are your favorites? Oh, that's like asking which are your favorite children. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult question to ask. Um, I think that I I because I'm a glutton for punishment. I've always gravitated towards plants that are difficult. Um, sometimes those have been. Uh, you know, if you want to compare it to the metaphor of traveling through the woods, you know, some plants like oka, I'm going to say, has been uh, pushing through really dense underbrush and not getting very far. But then other plants that seemed at least initially to be difficult, and certainly nobody was trying to do any work with them in my area, have become you know, interesting paths to blaze, interesting trails to go down. So sweet potatoes definitely is amongst the top of my list for plants to work with because there's just not really anybody doing that work in the north and there's not a lot of knowledge available on the internet as to how to go about it I mean beyond professional circles so that's been a fun one for me Uh, what other ones do I love to do Um, I love to do any of the biennials that aren't typically grown for seed up here too once again because there's so much to discover in like tips and tricks to make it easy and accessible for people to do that don't have uh, indoor greenhouses and all of those things that often larger institutes might have at their disposal. Another plant that I really think of when I, when I think of you is uh, it's one that I I honestly haven't found a whole lot of use for, but I I think it's really fascinating. And Mm -hmm. that is uh, dandelions. Oh, dandelion. I was wondering what you were going to say. I was racking my brain. I was like, is it going to say chufa? No. (laughs) Dandelion. I love dandelions. I I mean, we use them a lot here as greens. They're not. So I I split my plants up into these two very broad categories. One I call calorie crops and the other I call vitamin and mineral crops. So dandelion for me is in the latter category uh, because it's mostly green fibrous material that you're eating. Do you not like the taste of them? Uh, I have a hard time, I think, uh, digesting a lot of things in the sunflower family. Um, uh, right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a, uh, it's a tough one for me, but it sounds like you don't eat the roots. You mostly eat the greens for us. Yeah. I mean, the flowers, I don't find them interesting culinarily except for sprinkling and decoration. Some people, I guess they like, they have a slight honey flavor. I, you know, it's very funny because I've been doing edible landscaping either as my sole interest in plants or as my partial interest now. And people usually think when I'm going to give a talk about edible landscaping, that I'm going to talk about growing pretty flowers or eating flowers. And I almost talk like 0% about that. Uh, there's like some flowers that are kind of interesting culinarily, like nasturtiums or, you know, things in the nasturtium family that are kind of peppery or radishes or whatever. But generally, I, I just don't use them much. So it's definitely the greens. And I have been doing minimal selection for larger greens or greens which have longer lasting, um, longer lasting foliage before they go to flower and then they're slightly less useful. And mostly I find that's because plants uh, tend to have... Uh, they go from that that vegetative growth to the reproductive growth. And then, of course, you know, when they go towards the reproductive growth, they're putting all their energy into doing that, that they tend to develop things like foliar disease and whatnot because they're less interested in protecting those materials, or so it seems. And so then the greens are less useful. So how about your climate? What's uh, what's your climate like, and, uh, and what are your growing conditions like? How much space do you have, and uh, how do you organize it? Oh. How do I organize it? That's a that's a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, 
my climate, um, very different than yours, of course. Uh, so we have uh, relatively hot, uh, humid summers. Um, I would say that our last frost is usually around mid to end of May, though farmers wouldn't typically plant out until at least the end of May unless it was undercover. And our first frost is usually around the end of September, beginning of October. Uh, the, the hot period in our summer really is just in the center of that. So we have sort of um, a cool growing period, then the hot period, then another cool growing period at the end. And then we have quite cold winters. Um, I don't know what the average is, but it gets down, and I'm going to talk in Celsius, to about, uh, it can get down to minus 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, I would say more typically it's in the minus 10s, minus 20s. But the thing is that because we typically stay cold in the winter, uh, we have good insulating snow cover. And that snow cover generally stays from about December until about March. And it's fairly heavy. So in terms of overwintering some plants, the, occasionally I can overwinter things in ground that people can't overwinter just south of us if they have more open growing conditions so that the snow cover disappears in the winter. Um, my soil is, it grades actually from quite a sandy loose soil to a heavier clay soil, but I mostly grow in, uh, I would say it's like a 50-50 sand silt mix with hopefully some organic matter in there. <laughs> my growing, you know, mo also importantly is my my growing techniques or my sort of the cultural techniques and how I grow, which is that I am a very low resource, low input grower, mostly because it's just me and uh, I don't irrigate, for example. Um, I add minimal fertility. I don't add any kind of um, uh, organic or sorry, inorganic fertility at all. So it would just be things like compost or um, cover cropping and tilling under or leaving parts of the field fallow. My main grow area is no more than uh, three acres and that's including paths and stuff so it's less than that but I do grow in cooperation with other farmers for some projects which are a little bit bigger so the sweet potato project for example I grow in partnership uh, so a pumpkin project I grow in partnership and whatnot because so my my beds I, I'm sort of really focusing on the nitty-gritty of what's happening and then and I, I sometimes disperse germplasm or material out to other growers. Did I get any detail there? How yeah, do I that, organize it? Yeah, yeah. Through luck and prayer? <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, I, I, you know what, I, because of my interest, I have some documents in which I, de I keep uh, details and whatnot, but uh, I genuinely keep a, a detail of most of my projects. It's amazing how much information is actually crammed into my brain. I have, you know, labeled jars of seeds and whatnot and uh, in, in various storage uh, uh, areas and some documents detailing parents and whatnot, but I can often look at a plant and tell you what's happened with that plant over the last five years most of the time. I know exactly what you mean. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. Almost every freelance breeder that I talk to is also a low to no input grower. And so right. that's, I'm, I, I'm not sure anybody planned it that way, but it's, uh, I, I, I find that kind of interesting i don't i don't hear a whole lot of small breeders you know out there in their in their white coats measuring out the inorganic fertilizer to test things out pretty much uh it's it's always the same story not not much uh not much fertility going into the soil and uh perhaps following it best or some cover crops 
and uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder how that became so universal among that crowd. I think it's just, I, I mean, at least for me, it's that I, I, you, you have these limited resources. You have limited finances to go into this. You have limited time to do the activities. So you start to prioritize. One thing I have found is that other people, especially the sort of the uh, market uh, growers and whatnot that grow my plants, they look their plants look so much better than mine. <laughs> like looks like my plant, but like sort of on steroids. So I mean, selecting under these sparse conditions uh, definitely produces something. Which to me, into my family, I'm like, well, that looks like an excellent cabbage, or that's a great pumpkin. But then when I send it to somebody's farm where they're watering and weeding very well and doing all that stuff you're supposed to do, their plant is like four times as big. So it's good to select under sparse conditions, I guess is the point. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, Joseph Lofthouse said, said much the same thing about uh, his varieties. As well. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, it, it's, I wonder if, uh, if, if the big breeders might not be missing out on something there. Maybe they should be going the, the, the low input route as well. Because if you, I think if you breed I, for, uh, if, if, if you breed for high inputs, I think it's hard to go low. But the, but the reverse is not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind trading for some of their graduate students to come and help me and uh, they can <laughs> use my input technique. Absolutely. So let's see. Uh, I, I want to talk uh, quite a bit about uh, some of the crops that you work with. But before we get to that, so you run Astrolane Edibles and there's a, there's a big change coming up with that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So much to my like despair, I am actually going to be closing my company um, as of March 2019. And the reason is because, oh my goodness, our life priorities and family priorities have meant that it, I, I'm going to be moving away from that. So um, Astrolane Edibles is a is predominantly a company which provides some um, seed and other propagation materials, um, you know, like slips from sweet potatoes or whatever. Uh, and that takes up a huge amount of my time. And especially with all the breeding work that I also do, uh, which is essentially unpaid for, with the exception of when people buy seeds and whatnot, uh, it's just a it's a, a massive time commitment, and so um, uh, and without without I would say adequate compensation, my my company doesn't lose money per se, but you have to. Uh, keep in mind that I also don't calculate a salary for myself. I would hate to calculate the salary that I make <laughs> given the time input that I that I put into it. So I'm going to be moving away from uh, at least that aspect of my interests in plants, and and I've been doing some other work which has a which is simpler, which allows me to spend more time with my family, and has a really obvious sort of input versus financial gain aspect to it. Now I hope you're not going to stop working with uh with your plants at all right you're just going to stop doing so commercially that's the plan yes i I am downloading quite a few of my projects right now um that's just partly because i'd like to prioritize on a few things and also because um i'm they're taking a little bit of a, a hiatus from some of my plant work for a little bit of time too just to try and figure out a better well it's, it's impossible eh? the whole work-life balance thing just another thing i'd like to say about the company thing actually is and i'm sure we, just because i know a lot of small companies um encounter this is that i was uh, my company was growing kind of at a, a nice little clip and i reached this point where in order to grow more i would have to hire employees uh, and that, and I like to 
pay people who work with me ethically and a good wage and whatnot. Um, and that would mean that I would have to make a lot more money. So I'd have to ex sort of exponentially grow how much money I was making in order to be able to pay a salary for employees, right? Again, we're not calculating any salary for me. Um, so that would have meant me putting even more time resources into part of the plant growing experience, this sort of the business seed aspect that I wasn't even that invested in. Like I like providing seed material for people, but like just being a sort of business manager wasn't, isn't really my dream. I completely understand. I, I'd have to say that uh, I'm in almost exactly the same, the same place. In fact, I, if I wanted to hire someone, I would be legally required to pay them more money than I make. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's it's exactly. not it's not really an option. Um, and I think a lot of small seed producers are uh, are, are in the same place. And uh, mm -hmm. so I find it, I I think it's a good story to have on the podcast and to talk about because I, I get a surprising number of inquiries from people who are starting out. And, and who write to me, of all people, to ask for advice on how they can successfully <laughs> start up a, you know, a, a seed company. I always think, geez, I'm, the, I'm really the last person you should ask. Already, I think nurseries are the number one, have the highest failure rate of any category of, of small business. And, oh man, uh, I hadn't that before I started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and if you want to if you want to work plant breeding into it, you are yeah doing your best to make it harder. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a, it's, it's a really difficult business to succeed at. And even if you do succeed, the, the rewards may not be worth the, the, the effort that you're putting in. I, I do know, uh, more business minded, uh, seed company people who talk to me. And when I, when I mention sort of some of the projects that I'm doing, they, they give me the funniest look because I'm not necessarily, you know, being an independent breeder, I don't have to be beholden to per, like particular market forces all the time, right? So um, my interest in it just is completely because I think they look cool and producing orange sweet potato with a little bit of purple modeling in the flesh, you know, they're like, yeah, but who's looking for that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I like the idea. And, you know, to them, they're like, if there's not a niche that you need to fill that doesn't make business sense, and I, I suppose that's true, though um, I'm fond of saying it's important to sometimes ignore the good ideas to get to the great ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it, I, I think it's hard to predict what will be successful. Um, I, yeah. I'm certainly wrong all the time. My, my philosophy has become that I... I make things and I put them in the catalog and then the customers tell me <laughs> what is good, right? If they keep buying it, yeah. then it's then it's good. And and often I'm disappointed because I think I've got something just fantastic and I put it in the catalog and three, four years down the line, I've barely sold any of it. And, you know, oh, yeah. Kind of hang my head in shame and take it out and, and, and move on to something else. Well, what always gets me is when there's a lot of, uh, it seems like there's a lot of interest in something, so I finally make it available and then that's the year people decide, oh, wait, it's actually something else we're interested in. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> took me a while to get that, but that's fine. Yeah, plant breeding is slow. It's hard to, hard to catch the trends as well, that's for sure. This is the last year then that people are going to be able to get uh, many of these things from you. What, what is going to be available in the catalog this year that, that, uh, that, that people should be excited about and, and, and rush Ooh. over to, uh, to buy before it's too late? 
Let's see. Uh, well, I my northern pepper mix I strongly, strongly recommend to all the listeners who'd like a short season sweet pepper. It is excellent. It is uh, drought resistant, uh, which is something that we've been dealing with more and more, at least in our region. Uh, it's very short season, and again, it's a, it's a low it's it very low input. Uh, it starts out as a yellow color, most of them at any rate, and it goes to a red color. So especially for market growers, it seems like it's always ripe, which is a useful trait. And it's always sort of sweet and you can eat it raw at any stage. So that's a good one. I actually, both my eggplants were um, showcased in a uh, farmer bread breeding project up here and both of them I've had other seed companies contact me wanting to sell the seed from those eggplants so those are going to carry on because those are worthwhile too what else do I have that's really fun I hope that I have enough of my cabbage cross available so this is a a uh, half uh, savoy um, green cabbage with lilac striping and it's a, it's a, it's excellent flavor. But the exciting thing about it is I can teach people how to produce seed for, from it in our climate. So hopefully I'll have that one available. I haven't processed all the seeds and I'm going to be giving some to some other people to work with. So I'm not sure. Um, well, there's the magenta sweet potato. I may be giving that to another farmer to produce slips from in the spring, but I'm pretty excited about that one. So this is a it's 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 similar to a purple flesh sweet potato, except for it's more pink in tone. Uh, tastes nice, moist. It yields well for the north up here, which. Uh, as you know, uh, sweet potatoes are usually considered borderline here. I would say that we have enough heat units over the summer that they're not as borderline as people think, though. I would say that coastal climates would struggle more. I would agree. <laughs> so uh, do you, you, don't, you haven't grown any sweet potatoes successfully out there yet, or have you? Uh, well, I, I can grow sweet potato plants. I can grow vines. Oh, no problem. Uh, roots are, are another matter. Do you get flowers on your sweet potatoes? Never seen one. Ah, darn. They don't like drought, or at least in terms of flowering, I've noticed time and time again. Yeah, and we have a pretty, we have a, I'm, we basically have no rainfall here from end of May until about the end of September. So it's right. Uh, That's right. pretty dry. So you have like moderate climate, kind of misty. Yes, am I right about that? There's right. mistiness. We have fog, but 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 no rain. actual precipitation. Okay, yeah, I don't know how the sweet potatoes uh, would like sort of writ large feel about that, but I'm trying to select for more flowering. I know Joseph Lofthouse is as well, which and he's. He is like serious about the cutting out the plants that don't pass muster. So I'm hoping to see a lot like sweet potatoes that are producing a lot more seeds than there have been before that are going to be available soon for the uh, independent breeder. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting work going on with sweet potatoes right now. I think it might be that that might be the on trend uh, plant breeding yeah. project right now because I've seen. Um, I've seen on Facebook groups, I've seen on like homegrown goodness and, uh, there's a new, uh, OSSI plant breeding forum. And in all of these places, one of the top reported crops that people say they're, they're working with right now is, is sweet potato. And it looks like people have, uh, a lot of people are two or three, even three generations in from seed right now. And, uh, 
so that's that's pretty exciting. I know you were right at the at the at the forefront of that. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about your uh, sweet potato breeding experiences and how that's been going. Sure, I'd love to. I mean, I find it really interesting that that has become such a um, a crop to produce seed from. I wonder if it comes in part from the the sudden upsurge of interest in just true seed in general, starting at least from my experience with the potatoes. I saw people starting to talk about producing potato plants from true seed, and I'm sure you've had some people on here talk about that. Uh, and then I wonder if somebody just got in their brain, even though you know they're not that closely related or anything, but hmm, we do true seed for potatoes. Let's see if we can do some true seed from sweet potatoes. Uh, it's a lot more difficult. As I'm sure you've heard reported, uh, they're members of the Morning Glory family, so they're not nightshades at all, and they don't produce seed willingly, um, and they're generally self-incompatible, and not all uh, sweet potatoes will readily make crosses, and apparently, so I've read, that sometimes it's a uni, sort of a unidirectional cross, so you know, the cross, one might uh, accept pollen from another and produce seed, but the, it won't work in, in uh, reverse. Um, so I, one of the things that I've been collecting, at least informally, is data on which crosses will work, and that was great initially until I started working with a lot of seedlings. And so now these, I can't just say to people, well, you know, use uh, seedling X and seedling Y because they don't have those. So, uh, but what I have noticed is there's definitely an increase in seed production once you finally get seedlings that are producing seeds, and I suppose that's not surprising. Yeah, well, that that's been pretty much my experience with most of these clonally propagated crops. Is it's yeah, it's difficult to get the ball rolling, but but once you do, things uh, things start to get easier quickly. So yeah. how how many how many parents did you find that you were able to get to flower and and set seed? Um, I mean, the the first cross that I was able to do was Georgia Jet times some variety called Purple, which was sold for, uh, via another nursery in Canada. And I don't know what Purple it is, and it may have another name. I suspect that it was just a sweet potato that somebody has started propagating, and it, its actual cultivar name has been lost. I think this one might have been one from Asia, but I can't say for sure. It's sort of a long sweet potato that's purple right through. It's not actually very well adapted to the north it's not terrible but it's not the heaviest yielding of sweet potatoes and it's a bit starcher which is typical so i've read with the white or purple flesh sweet potato varieties georgia jet is this sort of basketball type thing that tends to have lots of growth cracks and and anyone down south will be like georgia jet huh very dismissive of this variety <laughs> uh, but if you're in really marginal zones for sweet potato growing i understand it doesn't work for you but for me and for other people up in Canada, it can be one of the ones that is just finally successful. So there was that one. Uh, I uh, didn't have much luck. I've heard Covington and Beauregard will produce seed. Uh, I'll tell you the story behind that. It's kind of fun. I visited uh, a agricultural uh, breeding site near Niagara-on-the-Lake, and uh, a friend of mine just brought me on a tour of this facility. And the person that was leading the tour had no idea that anybody would really be interested in the stuff he was showing us. So he's just kind of going okra, uh, here's some peppers, oh, here's a huge field of sweet potatoes. And so I raised my hand, and I said, I said, uh, uh, which, what are these sweet potatoes? And he's like, oh, this is a cross, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, what are your parents? And he looked at me funny. And he's like, Covington times Beauregard, moving along. So, <laughs> so I, 
I can't confirm, but that's because those are two of the most common sweet potatoes that are grown. So there, there maybe, maybe that's a, a cross that you can make. Um, since then, I received a bunch of seeds from another sweet potato breeder in Sweden, and he started his cross. There, I believe it was Nordic White, and a uh, or. Oh, what was it? It was an ornamental sweet potato with purple leaves, and that produced seeds for him. And then that was actually introduced into my population through seeds. And then those, so those ones sort of became the parent breeding population. But then uh, a few years back, I managed to get a hold of some more tropical uh, seeds. And though most of those, of course, produced nothing for me, some of those were excellent flowering and pod parents. And I and, and some of those actually did produce useful roots. I was a little bit worried about incorporating that material into the sort of short season material that I had. But to my surprise, in growing out the, the seeds from that population, I actually got pretty much all of them produced at least something. And most of them produced like kind of an adequate yield. And then there was exceptional yield. So what I didn't get is I didn't get a degradation of the of the yielding potential in that population, despite sort of incorporating some material, some pollen probably from plants that were poor yielding. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. How many progeny are you working with at this point? Um, I think there would be, oh, this year, how many seedlings did I plant out? Oh, boy. Uh, it would be, it's over 100. And last year, it was more than that because I would grow out a very large population. And so this year, I grew out just seeds from the this from the plants that I grew here so I just I didn't grow out any outside seed I just grew seeds from the plants that were produced from plants here and uh, uh. have you harvested those yet this year or are they still in the ground no, no. Oh, gosh, no. They, they were harvested. So it, around here, because sweet potatoes don't really love being in the ground when the soil temperatures drop too low. So even I, I tend to harvest before the frost because I want to ensure that I don't have any damage to the roots. Uh, and so I, I'm mo most years I would say I'm harvesting around the third week of September all of the tubers, and I saw some very neat varieties. Indeed, I have not opened them all yet, so I cure them and I leave them, and then I will open them to sort of uh, look at the, the flesh color and quality and storage ability and do any taste testings and whatnot. I'll do that in probably in December, so I wouldn't do that until they've had some time to store because I want to make sure that they have those qualities as well. But got some interesting looking ones and, and I have I don't know yet though if I have like the fantasy sweet potato which is orange with a little bit of purple speckling. <laughs> well, I assume you'll be cutting them open before long to check it out. For anybody who doesn't grow sweet sweet potatoes, can you uh, can you describe what the curing process is? Okay, so you have to, and you're going to hear different stories when you Google this. So if you're down south, I guess sweet potatoes are partially cured in ground. So in, down south, you will hear instructions sort of like cure them like pumpkins or something like that. But uh, in the north, and how I've read, there's an excellent book um, by, I believe it's Ken Allen, and something like Growing Sweet Potatoes in the North, Special Tips for Home Gardeners, or some variation on that title. I, I can't remember at the top of my... Off the top of my tongue, I can't remember what it is, but um, curing is you have to have your sweet potatoes at high heat and high humidity. So what I typically do is I put them in uh, 
paper or sometimes even plastic, though you're not really supposed to use plastic bags. And then I put that in a small room with a heater. So the paper bags, all the sweet potatoes packed together. And I mean, of course, if you're doing breeding, then you want to put them in small bags with their sort of labeled and you want to make sure they don't all fall out. So stapling them is a good idea, but you kind of pack them together and then you have that heat on. And because they're packed together, as they lose moisture, they're also sort of gaining moisture. So there's a little bit of permeability in the paper bag, but enough moisture will stay in. And of course, the high humidity or high heat in the room. So if I remember correctly, the humidity has to be around 90% and the heat has to be around, it's close to 30 degrees Celsius. So it's, it's think butterfly garden. That's how I put it. And if you, uh, See, if you don't cure them? So oh, just just one more thing. You want to do that for about three to, I would say, three to seven days. Well, they, they tend to rot um, or they just won't store as well or their skins won't develop this hard, this sort of protective rind. So then they, they're they more easily damaged and they, they wizen or dry. Um, there, are, I know people that do grow sweet potatoes and then just don't bother curing them. They will store for a period of time, but that curing, um, it changes. I think it changes the texture a little bit and the flavor. It improves but it also means that they can store up to two years. And I easily have sweet potatoes store two years. Uh, and then even a two-year-old plant, I can, I can often coax a two-year-old two, or a two-year-old um, storage fruit, I should say, I can then coax it into developing plantlets and growing those out as slips. So that's kind of fun uh, if you're a plant breeder and you lost your favorite plant, but you still have residual storage tubers in your in your storage area so then you can it's kind of like a seed right you can kind of try again yeah it's great when tubers are are able to survive two years that makes my life so much simpler yeah because i know a lot of potatoes don't right well if you store them cold um okay many varieties of of all of these andean tuber crops will make it two years but you have to keep them consistently at about 37 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, just, just north of, uh, just north of freezing. I was going to say, that's the other thing about sweet potatoes is they're store, stored warm. And so mine are actually stored in a very large chest area with multiple compartments by my wood stove so that you don't have to store them cold. Whereas I also grow, you know, I have a carrot project and of course the cabbage project and all those need to be stored at high humidity and but cool temperatures. And there, that's trickier to do, I find, of course, um, here. And I have various, I don't have a, a commercial type cell or anything like that. So I have various tricks that I use, which involve mostly outside storage um, and some backup storage as well inside. Yeah, that's it's definitely a, a tricky part. But one of my favorite, we we have a full walk-in cooler now. But before I had that, <laughs> I would use uh, I would get old chest freezers and put an external yep. thermostat on them. That uh, that works really well if you need to uh, if you need a big if you need a big refrigerator to keep tubers alive for a while. Yeah. With the sweet potatoes, I I hope this isn't one of the crops that uh, that you're going to be dropping. You're going to keep working with them? Yes. I may be changing its home temporarily. Right now, uh, I, I'm going to be working with a lovely farmer uh, called Kate. And she's going to be uh, she's going to be the, the farm home for the sweet potatoes. I know she's really interested in growing out that uh, calorie crop project. So I, I was doing a project uh, over the last few years with a couple of farmers called the, the Ottawa Calorie Crop Project, which was 
just taking some important um, crops that were good for the north and trying to do different things with them, of course, mostly improve them for our growing conditions. But one of the projects was also a, a back cross to um, ancestor of beets and Swiss chard or beta vulgaris marantima. So that one's kind of fun. I don't know where that one's going, but, but it's been fun to do so far. How about chufa? Let's talk about chufa. I think you, oh my goodness. you you probably have, I, I can't think of very many people who have a lot of experience with this crop, particularly uh, in, in, in growing multiple varieties. In the U.S., it's, this is a, this is a crop that's mostly grown for, for like feedlots where people are trying to mm-hmm. attract wildlife. They, uh, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll grow varieties to bring in wild turkeys or, or, or other wildlife that they can shoot. But in terms of actual human use it's uh it's it's one that you i think you pretty much only find in 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 health food stores you find uh you know plastic packets of of tiger nuts maybe but uh, yeah. but otherwise it, it doesn't really exist in the public consciousness so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about chufa and how you get started with it and uh and what you've been doing with it Sure. Okay. So the couple of misconceptions I have to clear up right off the bat. So there's a uh, chufa is the common name that's uh, given. Uh, you hear it mostly in reference to it as a food crop, but of course it's also called tiger nuts. Now, Cyperus escalantis is uh, is chufa. However, there are different types of sort of, sort of sub. Or subcategories of that. So there is the uh, northern yellow nutsedge or weedy yellow nutsedge, which has the same name, Cyperus escalantis. So that's quite confusing for a lot of people because then they think that it's going, to, and it depends on where you live, of course, and we'll get into that in a second, but they think it's going to escape their garden and become weedy. And if you look up noxious uh, agricultural weeds, yellow nutsedge is right up near the top there. There's also purple nutsedge, which was, is another species, but it's also terribly weedy and horrible, and people are terrified of it. So chufa, the kind that I grow, is not that thing that I just talked about. It's, it's not hardy in northern conditions. It's really not hardy to any level of froth that I've experienced. Um, I'm not saying it's not going to be hardy in very light frost areas or with minimal penetration of ground frost. It may well be, so keep that in mind if you're interested in growing it. The call Cultivated version um, has different habits than the uh, than the domesticated version as well. So the cultivated and this is true of uh, sweet potatoes to some extent too. Like the cultivated cultivated version tends to form um, these little nutlets or tubers just under the plant, whereas the and I've grown the wild species or I've seen it grown, so I know that it tends to produce less uh, of these little tubers and they're more spread out on longer little. Stalins. So that it's quite different. It's the wilder version isn't very well yielding. I don't know why you would grow it anyways. Uh, for food purposes. Now, for back crossing, well, we maybe not talk about that, but I don't know. <laughs> that news, but uh, we'll just keep that to the side for now. Um, I have grown various kinds. So it's a sedge. And it's actually quite a pretty plant. It's not very tall in my experience. So it's, it, I've never seen it taller than, say, two feet. But again, it depends on growing conditions. Um, it, there, it comes in different uh, – it's quite small. So it's uh, – 
I wouldn't, I'd say it's no more than an inch usually. And if you've seen it grown for game or in health food stores, you can see that. The ones that are selected for yielding in the north tend to be a little bit smaller than that. I would say with the exception of black tigers, which can get quite large, like as in about not quite an inch large but you know fairly big uh it can be oblong or sort of like ovally or more round um and the amount of hairiness actually so if you see them you see them all cleaned and prepped for eating you wouldn't see this but they tend to be hairy when they come out of the ground so what you would do typically is you would plant around your last frost date you want to plant you want to make sure you're either irrigating or plant with the rains or you can chit or you can sort of like get them to form little roots before you plant them but then you have to make sure you water them and you plant them. I tend to plant them um, quite close together. So I, I have voracious herbivores of all varieties at my place. So I plant in excess, and I don't normally have to thin, whereas other people might want to plant it a little bit of a wider distance if they don't have these problems. But I suppose other people might be planting at about six inches, uh, and you could even plant a bit wider uh, for reasons of drought or other things like that. But uh, So I plant a bit closer at around four inches apart, uh, and I plant in variety-specific rows. So there's a little bit more spaces, about a foot uh, even maybe 18 inches between rows. Um, you can plant on a square or two. You just have to do the calculation there. Uh, and the plants themselves will spread. So they'll, they'll start out with a little sedge and that little, that little uh, spike will, will expand. So it's a sort of an expanding um, tuft of, of sedge. And then underneath that, there's going to be lots of little nutlets and those are uh, all harvested at around, I would say around the same time as sweet potatoes, I typically harvest mine. Again, I, they don't love to be like, to experience hard frost that has a potential to kill them. So I would lift them before then. Uh, people would probably say that it's actually the lifting and cleaning that's the most challenging thing about chufa. Uh, and I would agree though, if you've ever seen somebody hand harvest rice, you'd be like, ha, this is easy in comparison. <laughs> You just have to lift the plant and you have to, you take off all those little nutlets and you, you, you scrub them clean and you lay them out to dry, make sure you're watching for chipmunks in the sun and then uh, you bring them in. They, again, they say you want, to, you want to actually them to be in an open container because you don't, especially after you just, when they're still moist, you don't want them kind of all stuck together because that could create rot problems. But you want them to, you want to make sure they're dry and then they can be stored almost like grain. Uh, they can be stored dry and warm and they last quite a long time too. The neat thing about chufa is one of the oldest domesticated plants um, around the Mediterranean, I believe, and uh, it, they're very nutritious. They're high in oils uh, and carbohydrates and fiber as well. Um, and they can be used, they taste similar to a cross between a coconut and an almond. Uh, they're not a nut, but they taste quite a bit like a nut. So I know that there are people with nut allergies that look for them. Uh, and they can be uh, ground and used in baking and whatnot. I mean, traditionally, they'd be used in a drink from Spain called horchata. Uh, which is sort of like almond milk, but uh, that's certainly not the only way you can use them. They, I mean, I find them a really interesting and versatile crop. They're, they are fiddly. Uh, the hardest thing would probably be grinding into flour because they're so oily that they will get gummed up in any kind of mill, so you have to be creative there. Yeah, I think I find them mostly something that uh, that, that I snack on, not being, a, not being much of a baker or anything like right. that. I, uh, I'll eat a couple ounces of them 
I, th- I think that's about the limit. I, th- I think yeah. there, I think there may be problems for most people if they, if you were to eat more than a couple ounces of, uh, of raw tubers, I think that can, yeah. that, that can get rough. <laughs> yeah. They contain a lot of fiber. Yeah. And you'll hear in Spain too, like they warn children, don't eat like, you know, a bucket of chupa. <laughs> Not a good idea. So what about breeding? Have you had any success with, uh, with oh. breeding this crop? With chufa. Oh, it's so sad. So chufa, I would love to breed. So I have grown out a number of varieties. Uh, My favorite are, there's a very common chufa that circulates around Canada, as it's clonally, it's often clonally propagated via the tubers. Uh, And uh, I've selected from that common Canadian plant, uh, one that does well at our place. And so that's just a very minor selection. And so that I call that ale select or astrolane edibles select. And so that my favorite is that one. And of course, that's because it's been adapted to my soil and whatnot. And also, I really do like black tigers, which is this darker chufa. It's I would say it's sweeter and it's larger and the plant itself is larger, like the actual stems are larger too. In terms of breeding chufa, it's very difficult to induce flowering. I've seen flowering on a couple varieties, um, but not at the same time or even in the same year. I have seen flowering on wild plants and true seed on wild plants, but then introducing that into the population has its it has its problems. So I haven't attempted that. Uh, but I would love to look into uh, ways of inducing flowering. I know it's done in Spain, and I have been. A meaning to do more research on uh, seeing how they manage to induce flowering, uh, so that potentially it can be done here, or maybe somebody from you know from Spain will send me some seeds. It seems unlikely, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah, I I suspect probably temperature has a lot to do with it. I saw a flower spike go up once in uh, in the greenhouse here, oh. and uh, I've never seen that outside. Although I don't grow as many varieties as you do, but uh, right. but yeah, just uh, just the once in the greenhouse in a fairly warm period. Been very sporadic. It could be the drought, especially if it was in a greenhouse. I don't know how often you water, but um, maybe drought would induce flowering. It's hard to say. Yeah, I don't know yet. Is this another crop that people can get from you this year? Yes, they can get that. Just wanted to say something about sweet potato, if I may. Yeah, I. And actually, a question kind of for you, too, and I think we may have had this conversation online before, but uh, I've noticed that, uh, at least for northern varieties, that short if it's the, the, the length of the axis of the storage tuber is shorter, that it tends to mature um, more quickly, which is why I think that you find uh, varieties which are more adapted to the north to be sort of shorter in that sense. I mean, there could be a parallel said for peppers and eggplants. Like, I have a, a Spanish um, a Spanish selection of a bell pepper which though it is a big body plant i don't know how many uh, sweet peppers you grow so the leaves of cells are big like a bell pepper but it had for whatever reason it has short internodes on the stem and the plant itself is sort of dwarf therefore it produces earlier and i find this true of uh, sweet potatoes as well if they're if they're closer to the stem the internodes are shorter than their and the actual length of the tuber is shorter then they're more likely to be earlier right you know, I live in a really, there aren't many people who live in this climate. This is, you know, I'm 300 yards from the ocean mm-hmm. and there's just, uh, in a region where not very many people live. So probably the the most comparable place 
that actually has much of a population would be like uh, Victoria, BC, right? Uh, in terms of comparable climate. But the the thing here is that you know we have a very long growing season. It just we just have almost no heat units. So right. the the yeah. temperature basically doesn't go above you know 70 70 F 20 C really right. almost ever and even reaching that point is you know is is fairly unusual you know we might hit that for a couple hours a day 10 days out of the year otherwise it's cooler than that so i don't really have luck even with very early bearing heat loving vegetables like i i simply can't grow a tomato outdoors uh, i can't grow pepper uh, I can't grow corn. Uh, not not that I haven't tried many times, but uh, those things, if I want to grow them, they they have to go in a tunnel. They're just not going to grow right. outside. And uh, and I think sweet potatoes are unfortunately in that mm. category. Although I haven't quit beating my head against that one yet. So uh, I, I keep trying to grow okra. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I so understand. it's it, you know. The, the, that's kind of the joy of breeding, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you may you may strike on it. You may you may find one that uh, that that holds on. And I, I'm really encouraged by the fact that so many people are doing sweet potato breeding now, because that may ultimately give me the opportunity to to buy enough seed that you know to buy enough lottery tickets that uh, that yeah. I might find a winner. And uh, yeah. but uh, up till now, it's been so hard to get seed that it would just be kind mm-hmm. of a waste to grow it here where almost all of them are going to fail anyway. And I just like, that's a very important point too, because I had very minimal luck getting my plants. Well, I had some that would flower profusely, but again, I was running into that problem where it didn't seem like I had much, many plants that were setting seed uh, until I was sent some seed from somebody else. And the, in that population was just the right combination to allow that project to take off. So, I mean, for those people who ha- are kind of curious about sweet potato breeding and have tried and just haven't managed it, just keep trying other varieties because I think that it's just, that's likely what the problem is. I mean, unlike potatoes, well, I know that some people have trouble getting um, nightshade potatoes to make berries, but um, it's relatively, in comparative, I would say easier in comparison. Oh, yeah. I think I think I think much easier. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it's all relative, right? If you're in a if you're in a hot, dry climate, you're you're not going to get potatoes to flower and set seed for you, most likely. Whereas you might with uh, with sweet potatoes. So it's all relative, but but yeah, sure. I, I think it, you only have to take a look at something like the Kenosha Potato Project to realize that there are probably hundreds of people all over the country who can produce as much seed as they could possibly use with uh, with potatoes seed for everybody forever <laughs> i love that about potatoes they're fantastic just imagine how many seeds are in a tomato there's so many seeds in a potato berry it's wonderful yeah and especially when you look at the pod of a sweet potato where normally i get one seed per pod occasionally i get two I've heard stories about people getting four, but I think that's the maximum that you can get in a typical pod. Uh, So yeah, like it's so much less in comparison. But the great thing about um, sweet potato plants is, and now just a a note to anybody who's listening is interested in doing this, uh, you need to nick your sweet potato seeds or scarify them in some way because they have very thick uh, seed coats and then soaking it can be helpful too. I know that there, I know at least one breeder who would refuse to do that, darn it, Seeds have to grow on their own. I'm sure you can guess who this is, but um, 
<laughs> it's a good it's very helpful tip at any rate but the seedlings themselves are robust so they're they they start growing pretty quickly and then once they reach that two leaf or so stage they get pretty big and robust and they're not impossible to kill of course but uh, they usually get become great big plants and will produce a a crop that you can evaluate in the first season nice it's very similar i would say to moshua that, yeah. that you know they produce about the same number of seeds per per pollination the seeds are difficult to germinate it could take a long time seedlings are very robust so it's a they're they're similar in that way um so let's say someone out there is growing sweet potatoes and they see flowering. Mm-hmm. Do they have any hope of, of getting seed? Well, you need to have at least two varieties or somewhere nearby there has to be another variety flowering. I suppose if uh, you have to keep in mind that sweet potato flowers are like morning glory family, so they tend to be open early in the day. Um, suppose if you had an ornamental planter or sweet potato somewhere nearby that was flowering, could always clip a stem and rush it home and put it in a vase near your sweet potato <laughs> and see what happens. Uh, they're pollinated by bees. Uh, I, as the flowers, cl- that's a little bit of a problem. Bubble bees might be your better bet. This is just a complete wild guess, by the way. But uh, honeybees, because they tend to start flying around as the day gets warmer, um, sometimes the, I, I've seen the sweet potatoes start to close and them struggling to get into the the sweet potato flowers. So, I have done I have done some hand pollination when I was super anxious to get some seeds uh, in the morning when I didn't see a lot of pollinators around. So, if you find that's true, uh, you can um, you know move some pollen from plant to plant. I usually just use a, a, a you know a little paintbrush or something, but it's up to you. The pollen's white, which is kind of a an interesting thing. So, you need more than one variety. What about yeah. what about these ornamental varieties? So they, I th- I think they typically flower more. Are they valuable yeah. in making crosses with food variety sweet potatoes? I'm going to just go out on a limb and say yes. I mean, they. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the ornamentals actually do produce fairly sizable tubers. I can't comment about the edibility. What you will read is ah, they produce tubers. Sure, you could eat them, but they're not very good. Um, I suppose, I suppose it depends on uh, where you are in the project and how serious you are and do you have, uh, is your project such that you want to get within the first generation something wonderful and you have access to all the sweet potato varieties or are you just somebody who would like to see if you can produce some seeds just to learn how to do it. And in fact, in the first year uh, when we were trying to produce sweet potato seeds, we were just trying to figure out how to go about and do that. And there are some other tips and tricks that you can read about online. I believe CI Potato has a document that uh, lists things like girdling the stem and in, inducing uh, uh, shortened days and trellising. The, the trellising, I think, is just about pollination. So there's some other engrafting onto uh, um, others, uh, Ipomea varieties, or, or sorry, species and that flower more readily. So there's all those other things you can do. But I would say that uh, if you just want to get the ball rolling and see if you can produce some seeds and see what it's like to grow out some um, some seeds to variety, then sure, why not? It also depends on do you want, are you only interested in the orange sweet flesh or are you interested in perhaps producing something with a starchier flesh? One of the things I heard a lot around here were people that wanted to have sweet potatoes that were more 
um, in tune with, uh, the, with the cultural recipes that they were interested in. So they actually needed a starch here, sweet potato, and they weren't able to get it because the grocery stores around here just were like orange sweet potatoes for as far as the eye can see. So they weren't seeing these white starchier ones or these more yellow ones or these purple fleshed ones. And those that the sort of the white flesh characteristic um, is more common, I've read, than the orange sweet flesh characteristic. So sure, you could, that's if you don't mind that, then why not try the ornamental variety as well if it's producing a tuber? So what else have you been working on? I think I saw pictures of, of chickpeas not too long ago that looked pretty interesting. So many plants. I've been working on so many plants. Yeah, chickpeas, that's a fun one. I think that was that, no, that's not my first project that really got me involved, but it probably is near the first. So I say that my first breeding project that really sent me down the rabbit hole with cabbage but because it's so difficult to produce seed here and there's so many layers involved but chickpeas so uh as i'm sure many of us have i read carol depp's book and she mentioned pop beans in it and i was like "Ooh, those sound interesting so i started to collect different chickpea varieties and i collected just all sorts of them and people were kind enough to send me others and i just started growing them all out and chickpeas don't grow super well here, uh, but the eventually over time, I just let these chickpeas mix. So this wasn't any kind of controlled crossing. And oh, gosh, I can't even imagine controlled crossing chickpeas. Can you imagine? Have you seen <laughs> small the flowers? Are? It'd be a little rough, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could do it, I'm sure, but I haven't tried. And uh, over years. I produce this sort of multicolored mix that I call earth tones, and it's beige and black and kind of greenish tones, a little bit more burgundy, and those tones are, so you have two tones per beans often. Um, this year I did this uh, little experiment where I planted out only uh, pot in one row, just the pods that had two chickpeas are like little twins and I got what was surprising a high percentage of those plants contained also twin chickpeas I don't know if that was some kind of weird fluke or something it's I think something I would need to repeat but I'm wondering if I can select for that higher yield it's possible that the the plants that were producing more twins just were better plants and these are slightly smaller chickpeas so maybe they typically do produce um twinned beans but um, the other plants in my population were doing quite so well so they were producing that less and and then when I grew out these these more successful uh, chickpeas they were also more successful that's a possibility it's really a, a fabulous looking result you know it's it, it's it's mm -hmm. really striking compared to the ubiquitous you know white white tan chickpeas that uh, that you'll find at the at the grocery store it's really fun yeah it looks like a totally different crop yeah yeah, I tell you, it's one of the things I enjoy taking to talks, and I like I, I show people a jar of these. I, I let them hold them. I pass it around. I say, "What are these?" And even though they look like chickpeas, people are like, "I don't know, peas." <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't look like chickpeas like you're familiar with. Yeah. Well, you mentioned cabbage. Let's talk about cabbage. Um, okay. You have again some of the most fabulous looking cabbages that that I've ever seen. Over the years, I, I think uh, you've got uh, you've got a red one that's just uh, in, incredibly striking, and I you know I've seen other pictures as well. So maybe tell us a little bit about your cabbage projects. Ah, this is the what this is the project where I learned that plant breeding is about failure. Just FYI to everybody, plant breeding <laughs> is ninety percent failure, and I might be exaggerating the stats here. Maybe it's worse, um, and ten percent success. I mean, I'm exaggerating the success. Uh, yeah, so it. 
this is probably the first project really that got me started. I had a surviving and a single surviving San Michel um, blush Savoy. And this is just like a Savoy cabbage, the little bit of pink in its heart. That's all. And a whole bunch of red rock mammoths one year. And I thought, huh, that might be interesting. I'll see what happens when I collect the seeds. Um, and I guarded this one mother San Michel plant and somebody broke off one of the flowering stems. It was a tragic day for me. But the rest of the flowering stems, they carried on and they produced nice plump pods. And I had read that it was likely to be self-incompatible. So I was hoping that it would be a cross. And the next year when I grew out the plants, it was indeed a cross. Uh, it was very intermediary between the red rock mammoth, which is this kind of late season, hard, dense red that we're familiar with. Um, and it, it was intermediary between that and that Savoy. But not only did it look absolutely stunning, but it tasted fabulous. So I had just a limited amount of seeds. And this I actually shared them with um, some people on Homegrown Goodness. And I have no idea if they continued growing them or selecting them or not. I hope so. But this was years and years ago. And then I, I faced the problem of how do I overwinter cabbage again successfully? And I didn't have a cellar or anything. I didn't really know anything about how to do any of this. So this started me learning all sorts of fascinating things about cabbage. I learned that cabbage roots very easily from cuttings, rather like those perennial kales that people talk about. I've learned that cabbage will produce shoots from root cuttings, which I haven't been able to investigate that much, but it's kind of fascinating. Like, can you uh, clone a whole bunch of um, cabbage if you have some need to in a project, kind of like sea kale? I don't know how successful it will be, but it's something to think about. Um, cabbage can be overwintered in uh, I, by trenching. So this is something that that I do mostly now and partly because I do want the cabbage to be somewhat cold hardy. So what I found was that in the spring after the snow melted, my cabbage would look okay and then the freeze thaw that happened directly after would kill it. So I needed to uh, put it below ground until the weather moderated and then I was able to dig it up and then plant it and it would flower, flower fine. And I have sandy soil, keep that in mind. I wouldn't do this in like mud where it would form this ice lake for you, right? Um, and then I also started tunneling, um, this is a recent thing, started tunneling my cabbages, not just to prevent crossing, but also to induce uh, flowering a little bit more quickly so that it would dry uh, down the seed would dry down when uh, we had nice good winds going and whatnot rather than soggy fall rains and how's the flavor it's so good i know it's like it's funny when we look at these things on the internet right like, well look <laughs> it doesn't taste any good it is it everybody i think and please feel free to write in and say otherwise but everybody who's tasted it at least at my house uh, it's a bit of an exclusive crop right now um loves it it's uh, it's got a bit of a nuttiness like the red cabbage and also a bit of, of that kind of mustardy tanginess that you would find more in a green cabbage so it's, it's quite intermediate between those two uh it tends to be a medium yielding cabbage i'm sure it could yield better like off my farm uh, it has a smallish footprint too, so it's not, you know, some cabbages have these huge wrapper leaves and they just take up tons of space. This one, I, I would say, fits in in probably 
easily in like sort of an 18 inch by two foot area. Like it's not a big cabbage at all, but it'll still produce a pretty decent sized head given that. Sometimes the heads are very large and sometimes they're sort of, you know, normal grocery store size heads. Would you, uh, would you say it's stable at this point or is it, does it still carry some, uh, some diversity? Oh, it's not stable. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it took me a long time to just get to the point of uh, being pretty reliable with overwintering. And I had kept the population pretty diverse on purpose because uh, I was starting out with relatively small numbers and I just wanted to, didn't want to select away anything that was important initially. Um, I'm at the point now where I've larger numbers and uh, still showing a decent amount of diversity and not a lot of um, not a lot of uh, of poor growth and not really a lot of disease or anything so I'm at the point now where I I'm um, I'm doing more drastic uh, selection on it I, I've always been selecting back to that phenotype that I want within within margin sometimes you're like well maybe this slightly different phenotype might be interesting too so I've been allowing a little bit of that but now I'm doing heavier selection well the good news is I think people are more open than ever to growing genetically diverse land races or varieties yeah. that aren't stabilized yet that was uh, that was pretty rough 10 years ago but I think uh, yeah think people are starting to come around i found that fascinating like because when i first started with joseph Lofthouse first started talking about sort of his more modern land race i call it you know, people were i think people just thought it was odd like he just couldn't be bothered to do selection or something <laughs> and then of course there was a there was a bit of a backlash against breeding in general when it came to a head with people who are interested in saving heirloom varieties, which I think is great. I think that we should definitely be having people preserving that genetic heritage. Uh, and it was just something that I wasn't doing. So when I first started talking about seed saving, people just wanted to talk about heirlooms. And then there came this point where there was this funny transition. And in the center of the transition, people were stopping me on slide two, which usually people completely ignored, which was disambiguating terms such as hybrid and heirloom and all that stuff. Usually people would be just like, their eyes would glaze over during that slide. And then suddenly I was just getting like hammered with questions about it. And then move literally two years later, and people are asking me how to produce a land race. That's really interesting. Yeah. I don't have uh, nearly as much contact outside you know the hardcore plant breeding community so i you know i only have this vague sense for how things are changing out there but that's that's great because it was for a while it was really it was really depressing you'd you'd breed something cool and you'd show it to the world and people would be like i don't want it <laughs> yeah it's older than 1930 right. nope. <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. No, for sure. so that's that's good i think it, we're starting to kind of get over the the GMO paranoia because I think that was a big mm -hmm. part of it, right? Nobody wanted anything that was new breeding because who knows, it might be crossed with a GMO. And yeah. unfortunately, almost none of the crops that most of us work with, you know, maybe with, with the possible exception of corn, even even have GMO varieties. So it's a it's not a very realistic worry, but uh, but it's great. It's great that that's that that's changing out there. I think also probably uh, part of what's responsible for that is the uh, tomato breeding, because those mm -hmm. guys those guys are incredibly prolific, yeah, and uh, and they're releasing stuff that's not stabilized all the time, 
every filial generation I think is uh, is is being <laughs> represented out there. So that's that's probably a, a big part of it as well. I want to see seed companies that say, I don't know, whatever the tomato variety is, we'll call it uh, uh, Mystic Puppy Dog. Who knows? F3. <laughs> I, I want to see that. That would be amazing. No, but it's true. All those tomato breeders have been really great. Yeah. I, well, I think that's such a common plant for people to grow. And I think that uh, once people realize that tomatoes often aren't crossing, I mean, sometimes they are, it depends on your conditions and bugs available, et cetera, et cetera. But then they thought, started to think to themselves, well, what if we wanted them to cross and doing it themselves? And tomato flowers, though still fiddly, are a little bit easier to deal with than, say, chickpea flowers. But I just wanted to say about the GMO thing, I think part of um, the, uh, the, the part of what contributed to the concern or the sort of the mixing up of GMO and, and traditional breeding and high, what, what is a hybrid and what is a commercial hybrid and all those things was because a lot of, uh, a lot of seed companies and whatnot were putting GMO free um, as a statement, sort of as a general umbrella statement about who they are and what their philosophy was. And, and I think that for us in the know or who were familiar with the terminology, we could read that as them saying that they are trying to stay by the organic guidelines or whatever it happened to be. But that's why I suddenly started getting a lot of questions on that slide because people were were conflating the terms GMO with any kind of hybridization or any kind of crossing at all. Right. That Yeah, hybrids really got demonized there for a while. And I think largely for marketing reasons rather rather than practical reasons. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think... I think reasonable people can debate whether it's a good idea to have a seed system that's based around F1 hybrids that some company controls. But on the other hand, hybrids as a general tool or phase in breeding, I I, I think are are invaluable and are accessible to anyone. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a matter of of how you're using them and not and not what they are intrinsically. Yeah, we like our hybrids. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I find it uh, really interesting. Now, I've been to some conferences and whatnot, and they were talking about how independent breeders, uh, should they have some need to, can produce a F- or F1 hybrid for a particular reason, uh, whether that's because they they want to evaluate a particular cross or they need to um, have uniformity in disease resistance or something like that. So now it's sort of entered into um, the the discourse of uh, organic breeders as well. So that's kind of a change I've also noticed too. Yeah, I'm absolutely interested in producing F1 hybrid diploid potatoes. That's one of my ah, projects. So the, you know, a seed, a seed produ- reproduced potato that at least has reasonable uniformity i think that would be pretty interesting so it's a fairly tall order i don't know if i'll ever pull it off but i i I definitely think there are there are good uses for for f1 hybrids just maybe not for everything yeah it's a oftentimes people would say if you grow in an f1 you don't know what you're going to get and some sage person once said to me well if you're growing on f1 of a pepper i bet you're going to get a pepper (laughs) right of course And you know, I, I, it's, but that's I think one of the things that's changing. In mo- in most cases, I would rather not know what I'm going to get. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. Not, nice. You know, that's uh, for for breeding. Uh, hybrids are a great place to start. So that's a that's a funny distinction because the idea has long been, if it's not an heirloom, it's useless for for seed saving because you're not going to right. get the same thing every time. 
but mm-hmm. but an heirloom by itself is useless for breeding. Well, it's often restricted. Right. Well, I mean, if you have more than one heirloom, then you can cross them. But if we're talking about a you know a true breeding heirloom, yeah. then you, it's kind of a dead end unless you mm-hmm. are ready to actually produce an F one hybrid yourself and then right. and then move ahead. So, I think it's a you know the other problem that we have is that people want to join a team, and I mm. I think it's very important that that we have people who who want to preserve hybrid varieties, who want to mm-hmm. collect and characterize them and, and keep them going. But, it, but it's also people that important that we have people that breed what are going to be the next generation of, of heirlooms. And you, and you right. really can't have one without the other. We didn't have yeah. people that were preserving all of, all of the, these uh, hybrid all, or all of these heirloom varieties that, that, that serve as a repository of valuable genetics than yeah. You know, those of us who are breeding things wouldn't be able to get anywhere. So yeah. they definitely work hand in hand. Yeah. So they're really there's really no there there aren't separate teams. It just some sometimes it seems to seems that we think there are. But as you said, I do think that I'm definitely seeing a shift, a change. Whereas when I first started talking about plant breeding, I would be. I, I think I, I I just don't think anyone knew how to handle it. <laughs> right. And I. There would be me and this guy who did potato breeding, and we would sit in a corner together, and it was fun. <laughs> but now there's lots more people at the party, which is also good. Right. Yeah. It's. I, I really do wonder where it's going. I mean, it, I, again, it's always very hard for me to judge because I'm looking at it from kind of the inside. But it, it definitely seems like plant breeding as a, as a, as a hobby is, is more popular than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now that may mean there are you know a few hundred people doing it instead of you know a dozen, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how much potential there is for this thing to uh, to keep going. We shall see. Let's uh, let's talk about some other plants. I, I'm trying to remember. There was one that I just thought was really fascinating, like uh, like dandelion that you work with. Was it Doc? Oh, patience, Doc. Yeah. I'm really curious about working with this. Now, I haven't, again, I, I've only gotten to the selection for growing conditions here. But this, have you ever grown patient stock? Not intentionally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you grow regular curly dock? What, what kind of docks grow around you? Yeah, we, we have a variety of, of weedy docks that grow here, but I couldn't tell you offhand which ones they are. That's one of the reasons why I found it so interesting that you're, you're growing it intentionally. Right, right. Okay, so most of the weedy docks that we have here, uh, they you could eat. I mean, I have a bit of a forager background in me too, right? So you could eat them, but uh, I have kids, and my kids are, are critics of food, and they don't love a lot of bitter stuff. So um, docks typically have a bit of an astringent or bitter flavor, but patient's dock just really doesn't, especially not in the spring. It's also the earliest vegetable that grows here. So I, as the snow melts, like it has already started to grow under the snow and this like yellow shoot flips up and then you can eat it like a chard so it's very it's a very very early hunger gap kind of green and also it goes to seed and produces prolific seed head and as it's related to like uh oh gosh my brain is um forgetting what it's called right now uh buckwheat there you go Mm -hmm. as it's related to buckwheat it's possible that you could clean it and use it similarly to buckwheat as a grain 
And that fascinates me, and I'm curious to follow that up further. Uh, I would need a, I think I need a bit of more of a diverse population of different patient docs to see if I can see more diversity in shattering or you know non-shattering, or um, how big are the little papery bits around the seed, and how easy is it to clean? Is there some that are easier to clean and whatnot, and and levels of different. Um, different components within the seeds and but uh, universally all the chards have been of good size and definitely useful you should grow it i might yeah i'm thinking about it now (laughs) no it's 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 one it's not when it comes to weird plants it's one of my top sellers like i would say that uh in that category well alongside hablitzia it definitely uh, oh i i hate to say this um um but it definitely outproduces hablitzia for me (laughs) Yeah, Hablitzia is one of those really interesting plants that I've really wanted to grow, and it just doesn't do well here. It uh, it grows slowly, and then it gets wet, and it dies. And it doesn't like being wet. It is it is a bit of a, a Goldilocks here. Uh, it wants shade because we have too much sun. I mean, I know in coastal areas people can grow it in the open. Mm-hmm. And then if it gets too wet, yeah, it, it seems to um, suffer from some kind of root rot or something. Yeah, it's basically an annual for me. You know, I can I, oh. I can grow it that way, but uh, but the the crowns always end up dead over the winter. That's yeah, doesn't like the cold, heavy soil. It's interesting that it grows well for for Stephen in Norway. I wonder if it's better draining or something like that um, soil that he has over there. Because I've heard of crowns living for thirty years. It could also be, uh, you know, potentially pH. My soil is astoundingly acidic, so right. the, probably not many people growing in soil as acidic as mine, which is down almost at 4.0. So okay, right. Yeah. yeah, well, and I do think that uh, the person that was uh, showing pictures of collecting it from the wild was collecting it from, like, the mouth of a limestone cave. Right, well, that's a clue. <laughs> So there you go. So I think you might be right. Yeah, I've lost them over the years. I've had them live five uh, years and then and then just disappear one year for reasons I can't tell you why. I do also have a very healthy population of uh, soil grub organisms. So sometimes they decide to just eat the root system of a particular plant. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. How about the... Uh... Crown base, sea kale, and uh, and relatives. Do, do I remember correctly that you were trying to make uh, potentially crosses between sea kale and giant colwort at some point? Yes, but have I succeeded yet? I have not. Uh, I think that I am certainly not alone in in that dream. Is that something that you've been thinking of doing? Well, I've thought of it. I haven't made any attempt to do it. I've kind of been lazy and hoping that insects might do it for me but uh the the, the, the problem is that the, these plants produce so much seed that even if they had done it i probably wouldn't know right oh you sold your one cross <laughs> right exactly uh i i, I know that uh, i think it's um i think uh, tonsmeyer was trying a cross up between these two i can think of uh, several people near me that are really interested in trying to produce crosses of crammed species not just those two i, I mean cordifolia or giant colwort is a massive plant 
with a huge root system, at least for me, huge greens, massive flowering head. As, as a vegetable, it seems like it has a lot of potential. I mean, it is a, it is hairy, which uh, not everyone loves in any kind of a green. I, I find that uh, the young leaves are less hairy and uh, they cook nicely and the shoots are, uh, are quite comparable, I would say, to sea kale. I don't know if you've tried them. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately it doesn't grow as well here for me as sea kale does. So it's uh, right. I haven't had as many opportunities to eat it. I I would say that the leaves to me didn't really taste very much different. They just weren't quite as succulent as sea kale, right. yeah. but uh, and the roots didn't definitely didn't taste as good as sea kale roots. I haven't tried the roots. It's got a huge root system, though. Holy moly! Have I, for me, at any rate, because they do grow well here. Um, these things are the size of your like legs sometimes, and and because of that, because of this massive root system, even if the crown dies at the top. So this is a problem some people have around here with sea kale. Is that sometimes if uh, it, it experiences those wildly fluctuating temperatures, especially when there's melt and then freeze, and then the the sea kale crown sits in a puddle of ice. Uh, then that can cause the those uh, shoots at the top at any rate to die back. And if it's uh, if the roots underneath are compromised anyway, or they just don't have enough energy to reach the surface, you might lose your sea kale plant. Whereas the uh, cordifolia, the giant colewort, just has such a massive root system that even if I thought I'd lost it because of some horrible year, it's come back in like July. Suddenly there's just this big patch of so colwort that I thought I had lost. So it does seem to have a very resilient root system, and that's good for the drought that we've been experiencing as well. And how about how, how about sea kale? How how does that how does that I work have, for you? I have cool sea kale. Um, sea kale works well. I don't know. I I'd love to see your plants, like just to get a sense. You have to like put a, a meter ruler out there so I can have a proper look at them. But I mean, sea kale does well here. It's uh, We have some very impressive plantings of sea kale at a local botanical garden. Uh, so it's been growing well in the Ottawa region for for ages, I guess. Um, there's references to sea kale growing in Ottawa in old gardening books and whatnot, you know, planting it alongside your asparagus. It's the, those three, so asparagus, horseradish, sea kale, those three perennial vegetables that people would put on the, the outer rim of their, of their kitchen gardens. Um, so it usually grows pretty well for me. Uh, I get good seed set from it. Again, I always hope for early seed set because we get the wetter weather later on and I don't want to have the, the pods contaminated by any mold or anything like that. Though thankfully it does have a pod so you can remove that. Um, I have, I was lucky enough again to get some seeds from, uh, where it's indigenous and, I have now some sea kale that has quite purple shoots. So uh, because of my edible landscaping background, I was interested in producing purple leaf sea kale and also interested in maybe reselecting some of the cultivars that you read about, but you don't see anymore like, I don't know, pink tip or whatever they were called. Uh, and so I assume that having higher, higher anthocyanin content would lead to these blush looks of the, uh, of the blanched shoots. So I've been trying to select for purple. And the other interesting thing about um, the ones that I have that are more purple is that they also tend to be a little bit hairy when they start growing, which might just be a normal variation of sea kale, or maybe it's an indication of an interspecific cross. I don't know. Yeah, I've seen I've seen quite a bit of uh, of leaf hairs, particularly 
in the the, the early growth phase in CKL mm-hmm. now. So I, I think it's probably not a sign of an interspecific cross. Oh, darn. But, <laughs> but uh, but it is interesting because it shows you that there's there's definitely more uh, diversity lurking in there. It took me a yeah. long it took me a long time to come up with much sea kale diversity because pretty much every source that I found in the United States, whether it was uh, labeled lily white or not, was mm-hmm. lily white. Yeah, and that has uh, although I would say that has more diversity probably than than most people recognize Mm -hmm. it's uh it's definitely much less than uh than than the species as a whole yeah sorry go on uh, but but yeah i've got seeds from quite a few different places now and 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 definitely some much more some varieties that are much more purple early on although nothing like some of the uh the pictures that i've seen from yours and i wonder if that's a heat or cold phenomena too because of course, plants often express more color when they're, ex- they're exposed to temperature extremes. I'd be, it'd be, I'd be curious if you grew out some of the population of my seeds, if you would get that kind of coloration, or again, if it would look to you to be more silvery or like lily white. Yeah, well, I, I, I definitely get some that are that are you know fairly purple in the in the early stages but uh, i i think you're probably right in a lot of cases uh anthocyanin production is is uh is related to temperature and although my temperatures don't get that hot they don't get that cold either yeah yeah no i have two specimens in particular that are particularly purple and I'm excited to see how they will, especially if they're easy to vegetatively propagate, because not all of them produce the same level of shoots, I find. I've also found that there's different, a little bit of difference in some of the uh, root um, morphology, where some of them are more branching than others. I don't know if you've noticed that with yours. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got, uh, I've got one variety that, uh, that I've selected that, is, that I'm probably going to introduce in the future. I've put some pictures up. Uh, in the Facebook group, uh, on at least a couple of occasions, it has a it has a central root that's like the diameter of a pop can. Wow! And it doesn't branch very much, and so it, uh, that that one I think is uh, has really great potential as a as a root crop. And uh, you know, some of them just branch like crazy. There, it's like a it's like an octopus down there. Yeah. But that one really holds together nicely. And I guess that I've noticed that some of them have more of a central root and then also side roots so that uh, that's useful with that, so that more kind of tap root um, for, in terms of drought and stuff like that as well. But that's how, that's how the cram cordifolia grows here with a really huge central um, tap root and then you have the side roots also. It's a really interesting genus to work with <laughs> and I'm surprised. It's, it's funny, there's a ton of research on the genus, but it's all focused on the annual oil seed types. Yeah, you know? I know that. So, so everybody thinks that this, that what this genus is good for, is potentially producing biofuels, not food. Right. 
Yes, I, it's very weird when I was looking into, especially some of the other species that that people don't typically grow. That's what you would run into time and time again: oilseed crop, oilseed crop, oilseed crop, and you wouldn't see any reference really to it eaten as a food crop, as greens, as roots, as you know the the pods are tasty too, any of that sort of stuff. Or even and the one fantasy I have, and I have no idea how easy this would be to have one that's prolifically flowering but not sort of draining um, its energy reserves and producing broccoli. Because the broccoli, I think, tastes quite similar to regular garden broccoli. Yeah, I think it's it, it's almost a frustrating plant to work with because there are so many different directions that you can go with it. But, it, you know, if you're breeding, you really need to narrow it down to, to one of them. But you've got, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a perfectly tasty leaf crop. A lot of people disagree with me on that. And I think particularly if they live in warmer climates, I, I think that must really affect the, the flavor of right. the leaves. Because some people just look at me like I have three heads if I say sea kale leaves taste great. But I find them perfectly tasty. And I think it would be worth breeding for varieties that maybe have leaves that are just a little more tender um, mm-hmm. than the average for sea kale. But then you've got it as a, as a root crop. And I think it's actually a really tasty root crop. And, uh, you know, by, by breeding for, for, uh, for varieties with a little less spread in the roots, you could really, you could make it a lot easier to harvest. But in, in terms of flavor, I think it's actually quite similar to, to Mauka, uh, which is is a tasty root crop, but you don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to go out of your way to grow an incredibly rare crop to get that flavor. You can, you can get it from something that's a lot, uh, that's a lot more common, like, like sea kale. And uh, you've obviously got the florets, which are which are great, mm-hmm. you know. And I think sea kale broccolis would be awesome. And then you've got the uh, the 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 immature seed pods as well. And I think there's some debate about you know how safe it is to eat these in large quantities because they have right. uh, you know erucic acid in them. But uh, but I've eaten quite a lot of them, and I think they're delicious. And uh, you know that that's almost that's a that's a fairly unique kind of crop that's kind of more like a, a pea-like crop. Mm-hmm. So I think you could go in any of those directions and and yeah. really develop a very desirable plant. I think we need a team, a sea kale team. Yeah. Next yeah. project. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, uh, I think you do have uh, a team uh, set up on on Facebook, right? I do yeah I don't know how uh, how much progress we've made but we we certainly are are present uh, and hopefully uh, actually I'll have to check in to see if anyone's uh, discovered anything really exciting this year but there's also the skirt team and how's that going uh, for me uh, this year was not a great year for skirt just because we had this really quite significant drought in the middle of the year. Um, so everything went dormant. And then when things started growing again, they behaved as it was spring. So we were getting a lot of out of phase vegetative growth. And so I didn't get uh, the normal seeds that I'd get from skirt. And also I'm not, I mean, I have some pretty decent looking skirt plants, I, I have to say, but in previous years for sure. But this year I haven't lifted them yet and I don't know what to expect given the the growth uh, cycle that we've had. But in the past, I've been actually very happy with almost all the seed growing skirt that I've grown. A lot of my seed came from, well, I've gotten seed from different sources, but a lot of my seed came from uh, Patrice from the Société des Plantes in Quebec. And he's done, you know, he doesn't mention that he's 
done a lot of selection, but you can tell that he's done a lot of selection on his plants. The seeds tend to be large, they germinate well, the seedlings grow well, and the plants produce quickly. So it's compared to some other seed sources I've gotten, I can see that they seem superior, at least in that regard. And I don't know if it's his harvesting conditions for the seeds or the plants are particularly happy, but I do know that he was selecting for good roots. And I haven't, I've seen very minimal amounts of cores in them as well. So that's just a shout out to him by his uh, skirt seeds there. They've worked really well, at least in the Northeast. Nice. Yeah. I have not seen great diversity from any source of skirt seed and i've looked at the plants very closely and right. uh so in terms of of the roots themselves very little difference i have seen you know there are definite differences in in traits in the aerial plants you know particularly the colors and shapes of the leaves the the colors of the axles things like that mm -hmm. you can you can definitely see that they're there is some genetic diversity in there, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of effect on, on the roots. And I've, I, I'm very, I've found it very difficult to try to breed against woody cores in the roots. Oh, really? I, I suspect that trait is not genetic, but is, uh -huh. but is environmentally determined because That's interesting. I can't predict it. You know, okay. every time I think, okay, here I have selected for a group of plants that have no woody cores, and then I grow them out in a second generation that now they have woody cores. And then I grow them again the next year. Uh, this year they don't have them. So Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that's really fascinating because I I always assume, given our heat in the summer, that whatever harsh element could be present gets to be present in our plants, like, you know, harsh tastes in leaves, woody cores, or whatever that might be. But uh, so far, I've noticed minimal woody cores. So now I'm trying to figure out what it is about the conditions here that might be preventing it. I would wager that rate of growth has something to right. do with it. And skirt grows pretty slowly in my climate. And it seems like it does a lot better in years where we have war more warm days during the summer. Certainly right. does for, for seed in, in cool years. The It flowers really late and uh, tends to mature seed in the rain, which is not great for any yep. um, member of that family. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I definitely think it likes it. I think I think it likes a nice warm summer if it can get it, and it definitely doesn't like a whole lot of drought. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't. <laughs> I can tell you that it's too, a little too warm for them this year. I think my uh, skirt is currently in seed. Uh, I should have to go see if it's if there's any chance of collecting it. Uh, but I would have normally collected it a good month ago. Wow. Yeah, it's been a very out of phase year. Does it overwinter well in your climate? I would assume it does. But. Yes. Yeah, absolutely fine. I've, uh, I don't think I've ever seen much dieback or loss at all. Um, carrot, on the other hand, is a very touch-and-go plant here to overwinter in ground, but skirt, no. Yeah, carrots can even be tough here. Uh, you know, on the, oh. rare, on the rare year when we get temperatures down to about 20F, that could be enough to do in some carrots. So, mm. I, I, but I think carrots are one of those crops. There are a lot of crops that uh, will resist cold better when it comes on gradually. 
and they yeah. can adapt. They can, you know, change their sugar balance to, uh, to deal with it here. Mm-hmm. We'll just, you know, if it, if it does get that cold, it, it'll come on over a period of a couple of days and go away and be warm on either end of it. And I think that really surprises right. some vegetables. Doesn't, doesn't work well. Well, that's, a, yeah, that's, that's our spring kill. So you have seasons that you, you have the benefit of, of that kind of right. predictability. Whereas we, you know, at most we kind of maybe have two seasons here, the the dry one and the wet one. And that's, right. uh, that's about <laughs> it. It's all the same temperature all year round. Average temperature is certainly colder in the winter, but we're talking only about maybe a 10 to 15 degree difference um, yeah. in, in the average temperature over the course of the year. Yes, I remember that when I lived in England. People would dress in summer and winter clothes, but I didn't understand why. <laughs> yeah, well, you, your your body definitely adapts to the you know to whatever climate you live in. It, you know, I feel quite cold here when it gets down to you know in into the into the mid mid thirties Fahrenheit. You know, just above freezing feels feels quite cold to me. But if you live in an inland climate, I would imagine to you that's nothing. Yeah, well, I, I'm like the plant. I adapt slowly as the weather comes on. Right. Minus 30, though, minus 30 degrees Celsius, it's cold. Yeah, I I'm, don't think I could really deal with that. It's very, very cold. Yes, I try not to deal with it too much. <laughs> so you mentioned carrots. I've seen uh, I've seen some pretty impressive carrot pictures this year. You've got, uh, you've got a mix of uh, some really interesting uh, colored varieties there. What's uh, What's the story with carrots? Uh, carrots. Well, you know, uh, most people don't grow it here to seed. Uh, carrots an open, uh, open pollinated plant. It's insect pollinated. It needs large populations to grow. It doesn't like to get wet during seed formation, and it easily crosses with the very common weed, Queen Anne's lace. So I thought that's a good project. <laughs> How I decide these things. I I like carrots. My kids like carrots. Uh, I'm fascinated by deeply colored vegetables and their potential for um, being vehicles for good health and lots of vitamins and whatnot. So, and I also, I like to cook as, as you, you probably know, based on the occasional Facebook picture I put up about cooking and carrots are a nice versatile crop. So I decided that one year I'd try it and I selected, um, based on kind of a stubby root. Now this has a proper name that I cannot recall right now, but it's not those long impenetrator types, but sort of a shorter one. It's not the rounded Nate type either. Um, And wide shoulders, uh, the ability to pull easily out of the soil without having to dig and without it breaking, Um, so strong stems. And uh, deep orange, deep red, and deep purple. And I also, after I started the project, received a seed lot which contained uh, what looked like black carrots. I didn't even know what I had until somebody said, are those black carrots? And then I Googled it and realized, indeed, they were. The package I received, it just said purple on it. So that's all the information that I had. And they are not the black carrots that uh, you've commonly see advertised which are longer and thinner but they're actually shorter roots and from that I was able to select the same kind of shape that I was selecting for the other colors 
So I've been growing out these, this deeply colored carrot mix and just seeing where it goes as, as part of my broadly speaking calorie crop projects and hoping to get some neat color mixes and, and to preserve those other um, characteristics. And again, the, the ultimate goal is to be able to easily produce carrots as a seed crop here because a lot of the growers around here don't produce seed crops. Uh, they, a lot of seed is imported from uh, larger companies and, and often in uh, the states that they're imported from. So I thought it would be nice to try and, and learn the techniques to be able to do that kind of biennial seed saving here and to develop um, varieties that would deal with our particular weather conditions. So that's sort of the overall um, goal in the project. And this is another steep learning curve for me with lots of failure. But I am, I'm at the F2 generation now, and things are looking really fun and very rainbowy. Uh, uh, though I don't have, it's not stabilized by any stretch of the imagination. My kids will tell you that they do taste delicious, and that they actually like a carrot that I'm not selecting for at all, which is this um, purple, it's got a purple blush on it, and it's a white carrot. So this is just one of the various phenotypes that comes out of this, uh, with a slightly crunchy core. So I think there's a trend in carrots to have essentially no core, or it has a core, but not very noticeable as a textural change. And this one has a little bit of a more noticeable, um, it, I'm trying to think of a good word to describe it, but it's got a little bit, you, you have to like, a little bit more of a bite is required to get through the core. But for whatever reason, my kids love this texture and they really like the, the flavor of this particular um, variety of carrot that comes out with this mix. So I don't know if I want to try and do two carrot projects. <laughs> well, you, like, oh. you can't say no if your kids like it, right? I know. Maybe I'll make them do it. They can have their own go. tunnel. Yeah. And again, and it's like there's so much. I mean, I'm really lucky in that I, my acreage is surrounded by woods. And the farmer fields around that, uh, they mostly mow their ditches. And I don't have Queen Anne's lace. And I eradicate it if, I, if somebody happens to be walking on my farm and they leave a Queen Anne's lace seed. Um, I, I, I scout and so I, and I mean, the pollen contamination can, can, I think it's three miles or something that it can uh, reach. I don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I know it's quite a distance. Uh, but still, I haven't noticed any significant QAL contamination. That's great. So my, my point is that they are open. <laughs> they are out in the sky, these flowers. Well, I think people, I think in a lot of cases, people probably worry too much about that. I mean, right. how much pollen, even if you've got it growing nearby, how much of that pollen is going to make it to your to your carrots? Unless it's growing really close and there's a ton of it, you're probably not going to get that many crosses. And the occasional cross of queens, queen ant slaves into your population, probably not that big a deal if, you, if you're breeding. I mean, it's different if you're, you know, producing seed for sale but but for breeding uh, who knows may only be to your benefit to get the the yeah. occasional injection of queen anne's lace there and maybe that's where the white purple carrots come from <gasps> it's possible secret. Yeah. <laughs> i don't know i mean they're thankfully all the carrots don't show that annoying kind of um branching habit that uh wild carrots uh that tend to have but yeah no it it is it is a nice one but again gosh oh my goodness so many and i have more than one uh onion project of course which can potentially cross too so that's another that is one thing i do have to isolate for 
oh yeah, you've been growing multiplier onions. How's that going? Multiplier onions. Oh, good. You know what? Well, again, not a great year for them, but uh, I'm, most years I get true seed from them, and they're a decent size. Like they're not as big as a store bought onion or anything like that. But uh, for like a shallot type onion or multiplier onion, they I they they're a good size. There's still quite a bit of diversity. With um, quite a few of my projects, I'm not looking to narrow to a particular um, phenotype or set of char- narrow characteristics. I'm looking for you know a, a group of of uh, like a population of those plants that's doing the thing I need them to do. And so for multiplier onions, it's be interesting, taste good, store well, um, be low in disease and pest uh, problems. So I have a few slightly red ones, a few. And then yellows and whites? Yellows and whites are the predominant, some pinkish skinned ones, um, lots of variation in, in shape. So I have some that are quite round and some that are a lot more shallot uh, shaped and the majority of them are that kind of typical slightly angular shape that uh, multiplier onions get because they're in the little nests like that. I think this is really the uh, the way to grow crops like this, clonally propagated crops. Have, you know, ha- have yourself, I guess we could call it a land race of, of many different uh of many different genotypes in there that 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 are that that are at least uniform enough to produce in in about the same amount of time. But the the tendency once you commercialize is to want to pick just one one clone to rule them all. But uh, right, we, we've seen how that ends, and it's often yeah, not yeah. good. So yeah, I think that's really the way to go. And I from what I've seen, there may not be a whole lot of advantage in doing a ton of selection on multiplier onions because it's pretty uncommon that you don't get a perfectly decent onion from seed. And so mm. it, it might not it might not matter a whole I, mean, I wonder if it's even worth having you know named clones of multiplier onions. Right. Maybe everybody should just grow them from seed and then just keep the ones that they like. I always recommend that. Everybody should do it. <laughs> right. You enlist everybody. Well, it's, isn't it Kelly Winter Wintington? Like, I'm not sure if I'm getting that name right. Winterton, they, I think. Grown, yeah. Winterton, okay. Yeah. That's grown out some pretty impressive-looking uh, multiplier onions. And they tend to be white, or there at least was a lot of pictures that I saw that were more white-skinned. They well, looked a bit different than the populations that I typically grow. Yeah, I think he started with just the yellow multiplier the really common one and uh mm-hmm. and and it seems you end up with a lot of white onions from that but um he he's over time he's incorporated more varieties as he has found them and uh, i suspect there's probably been some crossing with non-multiplier onions as well just based right. on how things look but yeah, yeah, I mean, he's the pioneer he based he he I, he was the first one to really write much about having gotten seed from these onions and uh and he's he's really produced quite a variety now yeah no it's they're very pretty looking yeah well i was just uh, speaking of your um uh, the the comment about kind of growing varieties together uh that's a new project of mine this is only year two is i've been growing out short bush beans of that have a very so people send me beans all the time I don't know if everybody has this problem, but I <laughs> ask for particular seeds and I, I let's say a sunflower and I get the sunflower and then like 60 variety of beans. <laughs> I never ask for beans. 
And I, I think I should put a warning on my website, will not take good care of beans. I give them to as many people as I possibly can. If they're special varieties, I try and find homes for them. But the mo vast majority of them just get planted in a giant row. And then I see how they do. I, you know, I have a philosophy, which is plant all the seeds. So I try. But uh, it's a lot. Of, I, I don't keep track of their variety names most of the time. But I do have this population where all the plants were quite similar in height, very similar in growth habit. They had some ver some little variations in the way they grew and the exact timing of maturity, but quite similar. Uh, and the colors varied from, say, pink to almost black. Uh, and they came to me just from completely different sources, but you'd swear that they were all essentially the same bean with slightly different color. They all cook quite similar and whatnot. So I just started combining those together um, in rows, and now I just save and collect in rows. And I assume there's some um, variation there, but uh, they work really well as sort of this mass population. If I were to grow beans, that's definitely how I would do it. There are a lot of crops that I would that I would prefer to grow like that. That's basically how I grow carrots and how right. I grow lettuce. You know, I, I don't care. I, I just want carrots and lettuce. And so right. I pitch any seeds I have in there and then I harvest what I get. It's a lesson to everybody. Just throw the seeds there. <laughs> yeah. Well, for some things, it's just, it really, it just really makes a lot of sense, right? Do I really want my lettuce to all be the same? Not really. I'd, I'd rather have a lot of different uh, you know, shapes and sizes and colors make salads a little more interesting than uh, than just having one one uniform crop. And I, I think anybody would enjoy just growing mixes of carrots. That's probably for for most people one of the most fun and accessible ways that you could that you could grow a mix. You're gonna get carrots. They're gonna be interesting. They're gonna taste fine. So I I think those are maybe like really good gateway plants for for plant breeding oh yeah especially the lettuce because it's uh it's relatively easy it's kind of fun to save seed from lettuce because a little bit challenging the fluffiness of it i mean you could if you were being just a if you're being a very low maintenance seed saver you could just uh, probably just throw the seed heads fluffing all into a jar and then toss all of that into your garden but if you're being fancy about it and you were trying to remove the fluff from the seed then you get to play with some some sieves or some techniques and that's kind of fun yeah it's it, it, I, I think that might be i was thinking the other day so they're starting a new plant breeding board for the uh for the open source seed initiative and uh mm -hmm. you know there's some debate about what this forum should do what it should be used for just going to be like kind of hardcore plant breeders or is there going to be some sort of outreach to the to the general public and I, I think one thing that that uh, I, I think one niche that has kind of gone unfulfilled so far is 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 mixes that make it very easy for people who've never bred plants before to get started you see a little oh, bit yeah. of that you know now the Kenosha potato project for example has a has a seed train for beginners and if anybody just wants to try their hand at growing potatoes from seed that's just that's great you can go join the kenosha potato project you can get involved they'll send you some seeds and you can just grow them and see what happens and uh, mm -hmm. i think there's a there's an opportunity maybe to identify some plants like that that are just really easy to get started with where you can s immediately see a lot of diversity and have some success and uh, be great to get more people hooked up with uh, with, with seeds like that 
Yeah, well, the potatoes are so fun, right? Because all the tuber crops I find are just uh, just great because you get to dig them up like presents in the fall. They're not like <laughs> visible initially. You have to, I mean, when I first got started, especially with the oka, it was terrible. I was always checking to see, was there any oka growing? I think I broke a, a, a few stalins along the way. Yeah. <laughs> just check. But, you know, over time, you're growing too many plants to, to start uh, digging through your soil like that. But but potatoes, is, it's wonderful. I, I started a, a project, ooh, now I can't even remember now, may, I would say four or five years ago with butternut squash. Now, this doesn't have the, the exciting diversity of a potato, but uh, that was uh, intended to just be, it's a, it's a bump, pumpkin that it um, only quite short season varieties grow well here. And so there is a little bit of work that can be done, but it's pretty easy to grow. Uh, you can you can grow a couple plants, you can grow more than a couple plants, and it's relatively easy to save save seeds from as well. And it's something you can do with your kids or whatever. So it's called the public participatory cucurbita machata butternut squash uh, breeding or breeding project, which is a horrible name. That's a mouthful. It really is. And I haven't thought of, I, I usually just say, oh, it's that butternut project. And then people are like, trees? And I'm like, no, squash, butternut squash. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what's butternut squash? I'm like, cucurbita machata. And they're like, oh, okay. And they're like, can anyone join or do I need to be like a, uh, do I need to do special work? I'm like, no, it's public participatory. So you can see the problem. <laughs> it ends up being the full name anyways. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but I sent out seed to whoever asked, and I said, you can fail. It's okay. You don't have to return seed. If for some reason you manage to get, and don't you don't have to isolate, because most people aren't growing much other than butternut squash anyways, and most people aren't growing other types of machetas. And I said, if you get seed, um, you can send it back. I put it in a big bowl, so the, that's the public part. I have a second line of it, too. I just mix it in this bowl, and then I redistribute it to whoever asks. And people have been getting pretty good results. I mean, not everybody in every place, but around here, it's for this region, so eastern Ontario, western Quebec. People have been giving me really good feedback on their own work. So congratulations to them. Awesome. So you've mentioned a couple times this calorie crops project. Do you want to give yeah. a little more detail on that? Well, it's not too much more detail that I can give. It's mostly okay. trying to breed the what a lot of people think are the boring crops. There's a there's a bit of a market gardener versus uh, uh, things we need to to survive in a literal calorie sense divide. So market growers are, are usually looking for things that they could sell at market. This is good. A lot of the calorie crops are things like potatoes and whatnot. You can get them pretty cheap. And so outside of sort of uh, amateur breeders, um, and now there is a, actually there is interest in pot uh, breeding potatoes around here. There's finally a project that started that doesn't have anything to do with me, which is awesome. <laughs> Uh, that has started uh, to get going, but there was low incentive to to work with these crops because people could produce the same old bulk varieties for so little money, and they weren't high value at the market stall. So I was just trying giving them the name calorie crop was intentionally evocative because these are things that that are important staples of our diet and that I think are neglected. So I just wanted to give them a bit more. Um, bit more attention and to get farmers interested in working with them as well and of course you can produce specialty varieties within that there's the whole chef market and things like that as well so there's definitely room i'm sure for for an amazing tasting potato oh we need a yellow flesh potato 
I'm waiting for you to do that for me. <laughs> well, I have lots of really, really great tasting yellow flesh potatoes, but they tend to be short day. So that's that's a problem. You need, to, you need to work on that. That's what we need to get working on. <laughs> I love those things. They are great to look at. Yeah, I I think that that actually won't be that hard to crack. I, hey. I, I've got a bunch of different lines that, that are adapted from short day material that are that are quickly becoming much earlier. And so that, okay. that shouldn't be a big deal. Uh, it, it's, uh, the potato seems to be much easier to adapt in this regard than some of the other Andean crops. Say, like, you, you're going okay. yeah. to have to live a long time if you want a day neutral oka, I think. I, well, no, it's, I, I, well, there's, the, there's a, that lovely lady in Quebec who seems to have managed to uh, discover, I think it's from your, your um, material, a, uh, earlier oka at any rate. Um, not early enough, really, but earlier. Yeah, I, so far it hasn't been too hard to get to varieties that you know begin to tuberize in, in early September, which is definitely an improvement, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's a long way from you know, being a high-yielding high crop in uh, in places that have early frosts. That's uh, the rate that it's going. I, I might get to, I might get varieties that start tuberizing in August in 10 to 15 years from now. <laughs> it's a wait, but yeah. I think in terms of plant breeding, I always think of people who breed nut trees. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, we, 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 we look, we, we just look like, uh, like amphetamine addicts, addicts in, uh, in comparison, you know, like uh, those guys are crazy. Anybody who, who breeds fruit or nut trees, yeah, I do a little tinkering with apples and I just think, wow, this, yeah. this is a slow process. And, and you, yeah. you make quite possibly labor for years before you get your first look at the end product and realize it's not what you wanted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, more power to them. That's all I can say. Well, you know, I, I have, I'm attracted to different sorts of crops and, but certainly, uh, and it never quite works how I imagine it might, but the clonally propagated crops, you have this small possibility of producing something within a single generation that is going to be great. Now, I always breeding work is never really finished right but i think there's a great advantage as far as it goes with the with the clonally propagated and 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 polyploid crops insofar as if you're not if you're not too picky about what you want right this is why i think they're great for people who want to experience just want to experiment with breeding um for the first time i tell yeah. people all the time you're not the odds that you're going to get the next great potato are are pretty much zero but the odds that you're going to get a potato that's cool that you're going to be entirely happy with are like 100 <laughs> percent yeah that's so true yeah i had this really cool potato and it got lost in the the door tragedy of 2017 uh so i had my my special backup storage was in this sort of room between rooms and uh it's kept quite cool and unfortunately somebody left i don't know who nobody's copying to it but somebody left the outside door open Whoops. and everything there froze including my favorite potato which was this little pinto color it was just white and purple you know and the purple was in between the eyes and i loved it it's gone now 
I have a picture to remember it by. <laughs> it sounds like uh, one of the one of the phenotypes that you get very commonly out of uh, out of Muru, which is a uh, which, oh, yeah. which is a pretty available potato as as seed. So it might might be possible to reconstitute to that. It is possible. This one was kind of quite oblong. I swear it came out of the blue Leslie times OP cross, but I could be wrong about that. Oh well, if it came out of that, guess what? Uh, the year that I collected that, it grew right next to a uh, row of muru. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> so it's, There's yeah, it's quite like Oh, that's fun. Well, I'll have to try again. I, I took pictures. I only had a few tubers out of that particular plant. I took pictures of them. And I showed them to everybody. And then it was gone. But that's that's the way of it. Though, interestingly enough, I discovered that... Uh, Oh, yakon crowns um, can handle minus thirty-eight degrees Celsius for short periods of time. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. They uh, yeah, me too. I, I think they I, I think they're better if it's fairly dry. It's here they yeah. they do really poorly outdoors, even though it doesn't get that cold. But yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. I mean, it wasn't probably that cold in the space, but it definitely dropped to quite cold. Though I do keep um. I do keep them in sawdust or vermiculite, so I try in order to moderate the the moisture content, so to kind of like allow them to swap moisture back and forth. So maybe they weren't just sufficiently dry that they were less affected, but I thought I had lost them, so I was very pleased that I hadn't. Well, we're over two hours now, so I probably don't want to yeah. monopolize your whole day, but uh, is there anything else that you've been working on that's interesting that we should know about? Anything that you want people to know and... Uh... And we haven't covered so many projects. Gosh, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's some. I mean, I literally everything I grow is a is a breeding project. That's just the way that I operate. I'm trying to think if there's any. I mean, I grew well, kind of fun, and in my experience, is nothing compared to uh, um, the grower in Indiana. But I grew rice here, uh, upland rice, relatively successfully two years ago. And that was quite a surprise to me. And I've noticed that people who are trialing um, short season upland rice have been inching it more northwards. So for people interested in grain, that's kind of that's just one of those, again, it's one of those things like sweet potatoes where there was a time when if you said you can grow sweet potatoes in the Ottawa area in Canada, people would say, no, you can't. And still to this day, when I bring sweet potatoes to my seed sale events, people ask me what they are. When I tell them they were grown here, they're shocked that they can grow them. So I, I wonder if we're going to see some reliably yielding varieties of upland rice in the I don't know if it's in the near future or the far future, or at least not too distant future. Yeah, that's pretty, that's, that's cool. Grains are, are the kind of the final frontier for me. I think that's one that's uh, that's a whole class of crops that I've really never grown. Yeah, they're, oh gosh, they, they are work. <laughs> <laughs> they require a different sort of work than the tubers, right? Because this, you, you definitely need some, you need levels of processing knowledge and machinery, or even if it's simple machinery, uh, that uh, you can avoid if you're just growing mostly vegetable crops. Right. The climate, I think, plays a huge role in that too. I think if you, I think I think those are those are dangerous things to to get started with if you uh, if if you live in a climate that has a has a has a wet fall. That's right uh, because of growth. Yeah. It's tricky, you know, because I've I've tried a lot of times to 
uh, get started with uh, quinoa. And uh, yeah, it always ends in tragedy. You know, I I like it a lot. I would love to be able to grow it, much less breed it. But uh, it is just it, it always ends up moldy. Yeah, mine mine gets little caterpillars or something. And I, I there are people around me that sometimes manage to get a good crop. Amaranth does much better for me. It that's a heat loving crop though, so I don't know how well it does for you. You should try patient stock. <laughs> well, I think I might have to do that. Have you have you well, have you experimented much with that with eating the seeds? Yeah, minimally. Yeah, I mean, it is a. It's similar to process to buckwheat, except for it has an additional um, processing step. Um, I've used it as a grain adulterant. I haven't tried to like just use it as pure flour. I don't think that would be wise. I mean, I, I, there are many plant growers that say that uh, that it really is about diversifying your diet and don't try and like rely on a single staple crop because you probably want to eat all sorts of different things in your diet instead of like increasing your risk of eating a whole bunch of one little thing. Oh, I know. I had another chufa question. So say someone had a huge amount of uh, chufa that they were never going to be able to sell. Um, <laughs> okay. What, Seriously? <laughs> what, uh, what would you recommend if you were going to make something with chufa for the first right. time, what would you make? I... Well, if that person is able to grind it, I like just like making cookies or something with it. It combines very well with chocolate, which is usually a crowd pleaser. It is very similar to like a nutty sort of texture. So grinding it and just making a basic cookie, delicious. All right. You might want to add some regular other type of flour to it as well, again, so that you're not eating like a whole bucket load of of chufa. Most people will tell you horchata, but I just want to buck the trend there. I've had it. I'm not actually a huge fan of it. Uh, I'm not. I'm, oh, not a, I'm not a big oh, fan of any of those nut milks, really. But uh, I, I might be able to get used to it. Yeah, I'm more likely to try to probably bake something with it than uh, than juice it. Well, one of the most delicious things I make with chufa, but you guys are going to say that uh, this isn't quite fair because it does involve a lot of chocolate. <laughs> I make a chufa, and this is for people who come over that um, they don't do gluten and stuff like that. So I make a chufa crust, uh, and I believe that I add um, some non-gluten flours. It depends on what I have available. Um, and just a crumble crust. So uh, that's just, you know, essentially butter and flour ba- or sort of padded onto a pan. And then I make a, um, a chocolate torch. So that's melted chocolate with an egg in there, whipped in there, and it sort of sets. And it's delicious. <laughs> All right. You should make that. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens here once, uh, once the harvest is in. There you go. Uh, I do have people contact me in a semi-regular basis uh, to use my to buy chufa in bulk to seed a field for turkeys, and they are disappointed when I tell them that these are the gourmet chufas. So <laughs> I'm not going to sell them in bulk like that. Yeah, that's I. I think that's probably uh, probably not the direction you want to take with uh, with breeding <laughs> yeah. that particular crop. All right. So where can people? get in touch with you and get your stuff so my uh, website is asterlaneedibles.ca so it's a-s-t-e-r lane 
edibles.ca and I am quite active on Facebook um, and my name is Telsing T-E-L-S-I-N-G Andrews so people are always welcome to contact me with their questions and whatnot. Um, please never contact me with this question though what what do you recommend because I don't know there are so <laughs> many plants out there but other questions, I'm delighted. I'm always happy to talk about things like sweet potato breeding. There's all these little techniques that you develop, and, and uh, I'd love to pass them on. So, Awesome. And can people in the U.S. and other countries buy stuff from you? They can buy seeds. Uh, I've never had a problem shipping seeds to people in the States, but I mean, please look at your local rules. There may be particular plants that aren't allowed in, even in seed form. Unfortunately, I can only ship uh, vegetative material in Canada, but uh, all across Canada, I can do that. All right. So last chance, folks, you've got until March to, uh, to buy all these awesome things that represent years and many, many hours of work. So... Get out there, Astrolane Edibles, and uh, and buy some stuff. And Telsing, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I had a great time. I hope you did too. Absolutely. So much fun to talk about plants, and it's great to hear your voice in person for the first time. That's it for this episode. Uh, I will be back sometime, hopefully, in the near future with a special Q&A episode talking about potato diseases. And uh, after that, I hope to be back on to uh, a new interview schedule for the new year. Thanks, everybody.